This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, a new air show at Sun and Fun. And an airmail journey recreates 100 years of aviation. AOPA asks for some more pandemic relief. There's development in the aviation workforce for maintenance technicians. Finally, Mooney owners can breathe a sigh of relief. Are you ready to do some Hangar Talk today, Ian? Let's do it. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, the 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, two With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, an amazing guy. I know you've heard him speak, and, and he his stories, you're just going to have to stick around. They are incredible. This is a Corky Fornoff. Wow. And now, if I remember correctly, uh, I've seen some movie scenes with Corky at the helm, and yeah. uh, they are quite spectacular. Yeah, Corky has kind of done it all. Let's just say to to you know wet your whistle just a little bit. He's flown under a bridge in a P fifty one, through a hangar in a BD jet. He was mentored by Bob Hoover. He knows Clay Lacey well. So this guy's been around. He's met the folks. He's been there, done that. Incredible, incredible stories. And we're gonna have him on in a little bit. I'm excited to hear from Corky. All right. So Sun and Fun. Unfortunately, as you know, it was canceled this year. Usually it happens in kind of, you know, the April time frame. It's spring break for pilots. Didn't happen because of the pandemic. Well, they've decided to reboot a little bit, and they're going to have an event in December this year. That's right, Ian. It's going to be the Sun and Fun Flying Festival and Car Show, the Holiday Flying Festival and Car Show. And it's labeled holiday because it's in December, the 4th and 5th to be exact. Yep. So it's a little bit like maybe an AOPA fly-in, a little bit like a mini sun and fun. It's going to be, yeah, like you said, two days. There's going to be stole competitions, the night air show, which I think is great, a balloon launch, and then I think for maybe the, you know, the community, some car things. You know, speaking of the community, if you've never seen a balloon launch, especially at night, it is just phenomenal. That is really a thing of beauty. I think it'll get a lot of community members out for that and as well as for the music shows. And you know, Ian, there's also going to be a town hall with Mark Baker mm-hmm. and EAA's Jack Pelton and the Sun and Fun slash ACE President and CEO John Leanhouse. And you know, the Sun and Fun 
air show and exhibition usually is a big fundraiser for the school there, Ian. Yeah. And that, that's a, a terrific science, technology, engineering, and math school, the Airspace Center for Excellence. And this, I think, will help keep funding going for them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, depending on the organization, you know, some of them are professional organizations, obviously, that have suffered as a result of, of the pandemic. But, you know, in a, a place like Sun and Fun, I mean, they exist, like you say, to for the aviation education, for the school. Sun and Fun is a big fundraiser for them, the show. And so, this, I think, is going to be really important to them. And if you're comfortable, you know, a lot of this is going to be outside. There'll be camping, vendors, you know, a lot of light in between now and December. But it looks like it'll, it'll go on. They got the, the okay from the local community. And definitely a place to be, I think, in early December. Yeah, I think I'm going to make plans to try to take some time off and head down there myself. Ian. <laughs> Don't tell my Good. boss, Alyssa Cobb, but uh, but we'll see, you know. Yeah, right. So, hey, happening in now, as we record this, a really, really cool flight. This is the Airmail Centennial. Now, if you hadn't realized it, well, I hadn't. The first Airmail, batch of Airmail, was delivered 100 years ago. That's right. 100 years ago this week as we record the podcast, Ian. And, you know, we've come a long way in 100 years. Don't forget, back in 1920, that was just a couple of years away from, you know, the start of aviation. We'd already had a war that uh, that featured some aviation, you know, artillery, if you will. But the whole idea of the airmail was to shorten the route from New York to California, and it, it was it was by train. And so the aviation aspect of it chopped off about a whole day. Yeah, which is amazing, actually, that because you think about now and the difference between a rail journey across country and then an airplane journey and how much faster. It just goes to show how much aviation has, has uh, you know, developed since 1920. But you're right. It, took, uh, it did shave it off by a day. And that flight is about 15 stops. They started at Farmingdale in New York. And like we said, about 15 stops. They are bringing, I think this is really cool for the Centennial flight, they're bringing real mail. Yeah, they are. They're 60-pound bags of mail. And one of our good buddies, Christopher Fries, who's, who we talked about before, he set a wheelie record, a Guinness World Records wheelie record. Yeah. But he was a first pilot, and he delivered a bag of mail uh, starting, like you said, in Farmingdale, New York, which is on Long Island. And uh, for folks who are not regular listeners of Hangar Talk, there's a lot of activity over in, in Farmingdale, New York, at Republic Airport, and that's just a really cool place. But very historical, and the air bag, the airmail bags were were sealed. This is the real deal, Ian. You know, this was real mail and definitely certified and and secured, if you will. Yeah. So uh, they'll take a few days to do the trip, like like they did back in 1920. And so we'll report on when you know when they make it through. But uh, we wish them luck and just a really cool, uh, really cool event. Absolutely. Well, going from that to getting back to some of the coronavirus relief, I think we need to jump on the fact that that we're still looking for some more extensions for things like medicals and, you know, and folks who are CFIs, you know, what can you do to maintain your currency and things like that. So, Ian, you might have some news on that front. Yeah. So I want to say this, this, you know, is we t we've talked about the PIC before the, the group that collects phone calls, you know, there's we have a when you call AOPA, you can get, you know, the membership department and renew and that sort of thing and join. You can also talk to aviation experts. A lot of these folks are CFIs, they're mechanics. One of the things they do, one of their really important jobs in that department is to gather information for, for the aviation community and, you know, disseminate it across AOPA. So legislative affairs, the president's office, everybody, the magazines, you know, the websites, all of it. And so we had been hearing from members who had been calling saying, 
hey, you know, it's great that we have some extensions, but I still can't find somebody to fly with me to do my flight review. I can't find somebody to do my medical. And so as a result of that, AOPA has asked for two additional months. It, it expires right now, some of the relief at the end of September, I think. At this point, we're asking for two additional months to be able to provide a little bit more relief for folks who are, who are going to expire with some certificates during that time. Yeah, and I'm one of those people, Ian, because I have a medical certificate that's up for renewal. Basically, I got it on September the 8th, 2018, so you would normally give me till the end of the month in September. But I'm part of the original wave of, of medical certificates that had a little bit of a grace period. But like you said, if you're a flight instructor whose certificate would expire, I mean, we're looking at, you know, October, November, December now. And basically, I think that the, the, what's looking good about this is the fact that it looks like the FAA is listening to us, AOPA and other general aviation groups that are saying we need a little bit more time because of the logistics, as you mentioned just a minute ago. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Steve Dixon, like you mentioned, the administrator, I think it was in August sometime, he said, he said, yes, you know, we will do what we need to do to accommodate. We understand the situation. You know, it's very regional, I would say. Some folks have no problem getting to the airport, finding a CFI will fly with them, that sort of thing. But we are hearing certain in certain states, certain areas, that that is just not happening. And so I think it is needed, and, and, and it does seem like the FAA will be on board. So keep your ears peeled, but it does seem like probably there will be some, some flight review and uh, medical certificate relief through the end of the year. Or, or through the end of the coronavirus pandemic, whenever we see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. And Ian, you mentioned something at the top of this segment. You know, you, I don't know if Hangar Talk podcast listeners remember, but you worked in, in the Pilot Information Center a long time ago, right? Yeah, I did. That's how I started AOPA. It was fascinating and really hard work because it's like, you, you know, you sit down on the phones and somebody calls and your first call of the day might be, hey, um, I'm confused about when I need to do a flight review. It's like, I did one in a glider. Does that count for an airplane? And so, you know, you've got to either know the question or you got to research it and give them the answer. And then the next call might be, hey, I'm thinking about buying an airplane. Uh, where do I get a pre-buy? Or I want to know, is, is the asking price right? Or what I should offer in return? And so it just, your entire day is like that. It bounces from subject to subject. It really forces you to kind of dig deep in a lot of different subjects. It's really, it's a fascinating job. That's one reason why you're a really good hangar talk coach uh, no, no, because no. you have that background. You know, <laughs> no, your knowledge no. goes really deep. Uh, no, no, Thanks, uh, I no, that, I, no, no. I think I think we're all we're all benefiting from your experience. <laughs> Thanks. Hey, so next thing we you know we mentioned the coronavirus relief that AOPA is asking for. Another thing AOPA has been doing, the you know Congress a couple of years ago through the FAA reauthorization said we want to support folks getting into aviation, you know, supporting the workforce. We know there's going to be a shortage of pilots. know there's going to be a shortage of maintenance technicians. And so they, FAA, or the Congress said, $5 million bucks a year, we want to fund some workforce development. FAA obviously had that task and really wasn't supporting it, wasn't divvying out that money. And AOPA pushed some folks in Congress and, and you know, they got together and said, well, it's time, FAA, you need to start awarding the money. Yeah, we sent a note to, to these folks uh, a little while ago, basically saying, hey, um, you approved of the programs. There's $5 million up in the air. What are you doing with it for fiscal year 2020? And what we, what we want to do is refill the ranks of maintenance technicians, which we know there will still be a shortfall of, and other programs, other, you know, educational programs for, for folks in the next generation. And so what, it, what do we do about it? And so the money's there. We just need to get some initiatives going. 
and uh, that will help us support things like the AOPA high school initiative and, and other training programs to get not only maintenance technicians in the air, but pilots in the air too. Yeah. So lo and behold, uh, you learned that yesterday the FAA put an, out an announcement related to this. Absolutely. And so yesterday the FAA did send out a note that basically looks like they're getting, they're getting on the case. They've posted a note in the Federal Register that will appropriate that $5 million for fiscal year 2020 to fund projects that basically will be grants to academia and the aviation community. Now, these grants, Ian, will be between $25,000 and $500,000 for any one grant in any one fiscal year. So what we need to do is encourage the listeners to the Hangar Talk podcast, especially the educators that listen and their friends, to jump into the FAA, look for that website, and apply for some of those grants, and let's help get some new maintenance technicians in the field. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, that's uh, that's a good point. And so, yeah, make sure to do that. And because, you know, maintenance technicians, I mean, we obviously spend a lot of time talking about pilots, but uh, maintenance technicians, same boat. You know, a lot of uh, baby boomers retiring. The industry is expanding. It's a great career, a lot of opportunity, a lot of options. So it's good to see the FAA finally uh, divvying out that money. Absolutely. And before we leave maintenance technicians, uh, just another plug for another podcast that you're helping handle, the Ask the A&P podcast, which which is a direct relation to what we're just talking about here as far as maintenance careers. We have three pretty savvy maintenance personnel that help answer our questions. And, and I, I really enjoyed the first show. Yeah, so thanks for that. To ask the ANPs, that's yeah, Mike Bush, um, Colleen Sterling, and Paul New. They are fascinating, incredibly knowledgeable. They've got great stories and great advice, which is the big thing. So yeah, check it out. Ask the ANPs. You can find it really wherever you look for podcasts, or you can search AOPA too and find it there. So hey, let's finish today with the news talking about Mooney, something near and dear to your heart and good news for Mooney owners. Absolutely good news for Mooney owners. Uh, It is near and dear to my heart because I owned an F model and a C model. But listen, Ian, a Mooney pilot is part of a group of U.S.-based aircraft owners and aviators that have basically rescued Mooney. And so they now own 80% of uh, Mooney International. Hmm. And the good news, Ian, is that parts are being made again in Kerrville, Texas. And these are Americans back to work in Texas. And there are some there are some indications that in the future, Mooney will look to change some of their signature models a little bit to incorporate a little bit more utility. Now, we'll get to that in a minute, though. But, um, you know, the Mooney plant most recently basically shuttered in January. Yeah. Uh, sort of the first week in January. And that was after employees had come back to work for, um, from the winter break. They had been furloughed shortly before that. So it was up and down, up and down for the employees. And meanwhile, Mooney owners were wondering, well, where will we get our parts and our support? Mm-hmm. And there were also a couple of airplanes on the factory floor in the process of being produced. Yeah. So, so those, those two airplanes will see final production, an ovation, and an acclaim. And I had a, a great conversation with Johnny Pollock, and he's part of that investor group. He's a Mooney owner. He's an acclaim owner, a former M201 Mooney J model owner. Nice. And he was a great guy on the phone. Ian, I want to tell our listeners that his heart's in the right place. And he was extremely knowledgeable, and he really wanted to get things going to keep that fleet of 7,000 aircraft in the air. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, he certainly said all the right things in the story. And, and I think, you know, like we talked about when this happened, there's, I mean, with 7,000 airplanes, there's money to be made. There is a company to be supported just by selling parts and supporting those airframes. And so we knew it would, somebody would step in. I don't, you know, this was a surprise, I think, to, to everybody kind of publicly that it's been happening since January. He's been involved. The group's been involved. I think they, they smelled trouble late last year and stepped in kind of as soon as they could. And, and he's right. He notes that parts, you know, stabilizing the company, making sure they're producing parts, producing them for the right price, quality, that's job one. They're going to make sure that they do this well. And then they'll move on to, like you said, some future projects. Yeah, you know, the two most recent airplanes, uh, really the uh, Ovation, which sells for $719,000, and the $799,000 Acclaim, you know, they were, they were just top-of-the-line flagship models when they came out. And these both have two doors on them. These are the two cockpit door model aircraft. But uh, there are so many of the older aircraft out there, and Mooney owners like myself, we're just fanatics, Ian. (laughs) I mean, it's like they're pushrod-controlled airplane. You get in the airplane, it surrounds you. It's not like you're sitting on a bench. You're like, it's a bucket seat cupping your booty, you know? And you are just, I mean, it is a sports car. And in fact, when I talked to Johnny, and I I called him, I said, hey, Jonathan, this is David Tools. He goes, call me Johnny. You know, <laughs> so I was like, he goes, my friends call me Johnny, and, and you're a friend. Call me Johnny. I said, okay, uh, well, let's talk a little bit more about it. And so, you know, he basically said that owning a Mooney and the way it flies, he said, and here's a quote he said, they're like a Ferrari in the sky. And here's where Johnny's coming from, just so our listeners know. He said that, listen, everybody is pouring their heart and soul into every aircraft on that line in Texas. But the problem is that while they were pouring their heart and soul into those aircraft, the competition was pouring plastic into a mold. So, Ouch. So, so the gauntlet <laughs> has been thrown down. Yes. But, you know, Ian, you mentioned this a, a second ago in this segment. Some of the future plans could include increasing that gross weight of that Mooney and uh, the long body model, the newer models. And that would enable the aircraft manufacturer to install a whole airframe parachute and to tweak the landing gear a little bit. And so these are two things that owners have been asking for for a long time. So that's that's really significant. And and we're not sure, but it might go all the way back to the Mooney 205 models. I talked with Don Maxwell, who's like a Mooney service center guru, mm-hmm. one of our one of our, our key supporters here in this operation. But Don says that, you know, the weight increase might go further back you know, all the way to the 205. And Johnny said maybe even further back than that. But that is not on the immediate plans. That's yeah. after things are stabilized, after parts are available, after things are basically back to normal. But yep. it's on the on the drawing boards. Yeah, which I think is important because it shows that they're listening to the owners. I mean, when you go for something like a gross weight increase, it shows, you know, the owners have said to you, hey, man, I, I just give me a little bit more. If I had so, a little bit more, you know, I could carry a little bit more or you could exactly put some more equipment on it, safety equipment. I think it doesn't take a genius to look at the market and say that one reason that Cirrus, you know, differentiates itself is that CAPS. So putting a parachute on the Mooney, well, maybe not, you know, setting the world on fire would, I think, 
do go a long way to kind of closing that competitive gap because in a lot of ways the Mooney beats it, you know, speed. It does. Efficiency, especially efficiency. I mean, like Johnny said, he gets 13 gallons per hour and he's like flying super fast across yeah. the country. I mean, there's nothing that will beat a Mooney basically on efficiency. Yeah, that's right. And uh, even that 201 model, Ian, back when it came out, it was a 200 horsepower engine that eked out supposedly 201 miles per hour, which is why they called it a 201. But I know when I had my C model, I mean, I got, I was cruising, you know, I would say about mid 140s, not wise on, on like 10 gallons an hour, nine gallons an hour. And, you know, I look at a Cesta 172 that I fly often and that's going at about 110 knots, maybe. Yeah, for that same fuel Um, burn. Yep. Yeah. So it's, and then one other thing that, um, that Johnny talked about, and this might be really cool for folks with older Moonies, the E models, the C models and the F models. Is that and even the J miles is that the company is considering a factory recertification process for you know for older Moonies. Basically, engineers would come in and scour that airplane and basically make it a, like a like new airplane. And those are the folks who know how to do it. I mean, they're building the new ones. They know the nuances of these models. Yeah, that's cool. Factory refurb. Yeah, I think good ideas. So I, I think you know. Obviously, we, we hope for the best for Mooney. We love them, want them to succeed, want some stability there for the owners. So, yeah, all the best to them. And so I, I will say another guy who likes fast airplanes is Corky Fornoff. This guy, he's flown P-51s, he's flown jets. And so in amongst his amazing stories, we're going to learn how to fly under a bridge. And we're going to learn uh, some of the secrets to some of the jets and, and airplane scenes you've seen in uh, some favorite movies. Thanks so much for taking the time and for joining us. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Ian. Yeah. My pleasure. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How'd you get started in flying? I grew up in an aviation family. My uh, father was a Navy fighter pilot, and um, he did the same thing that Hoover did, but in the Navy. What's that? He, he landed with one engine all the time? No. <laughs> he had a reputation um, with the admirals and so forth that if they had a fighter squadron that had a problem, or there was a rumor about the airplane that scared pilots, they would send my father to that squadron and he'd go out and say, give me the worst one you got and put on a demonstration with it, you know, to kind of cure the problem, you know, and and that's how, of course, he knew Hoover and, and that's how I've known him, you know, and when he came back from the war, he ended up buying a Bearcat and this was in the 50s and we started, he started flying air shows and we had a Cadillac Oldsmobile dealership so I was, uh, we always had aviators coming by our house, and uh, he was flying air shows almost every weekend with Hoover and the Blue Angels or the Thunderbirds or, you know, wherever the shows were. And as time went on, when I was 10, I started traveling to the shows and cleaning his airplane and Hoover's Mustang. You know, it was quite an adventure. Now, to me, Bob was just a good friend and kind of a mentor, and we grew up together. So Bob had an interest in me. And that's kind of how everything started. And over the years, through my career, which has taken me through the uh, movie industry, I would keep notes and pictures and things of that nature. And But, you know, here again, I didn't think anything of it. In fact, my dad said we had the Bearcat, the Mustang, and the T6. And 
when I wanted to learn to fly, he said, okay, go rebuild the T-6 and you could use it. He said, I'm not going to buy another airplane. So after rebuilding it, and we had an AI that would come and sign it off, and he had me redo a number of things. So I started doing it right. But when I finished working every day on it, I would go out and taxi it. So by the time it came for me to start taking lessons, I already had about 125 hours of taxi time. <laughs> you and, were a bro. Uh, <laughs> you were yeah, a bro yeah, on the ground. Was, that's yeah. the hardest part. Yeah. <laughs> and I would have things like uh, Hoover knew that I was going out and doing high-speed taxis. And one day he looked at me and he said, uh, so uh, how was it when you lifted off? <laughs> and I just looked at him and said, I just held what I had and reduced the power. And he told me he wanted me to understand what had happened. Everything that he and my father taught me, it wasn't just good enough to know it. I had to understand it. You know, like a child with a candle. If you tell him, if he sticks his finger in there, it's going to burn. He knows it, but he doesn't understand it till he sticks his finger in the fire. Yeah, sure. You know, the same kind of thing. So he said, you know, what I want you to realize was when you do it again, is that below stall speed, you can still feel the controls. You're using the rudder and the elevator and the ailerons. And he said, when you lift it off, he said, and you just reduce the power, it landed itself, didn't it? I said, yeah, I didn't do anything. I was kind of scared. He said, the airplane can fly better than you can. What you have to know is how to tell it what to do. Yeah. So how, how old were you? And now you, you flew shows with your dad afterwards. Oh yeah. How old were you when you first started flying shows? I was first started flying shows. I was about 22 or 23. The first air show I ever flew, uh, because here again, I was, when I started flying our Mustang, I had been riding with Hoover most of the time was at Houston, Texas. And it was at Spaceland Air Park. And it was a little air park south of the NASA where most of the air astronauts would go fly just for fun. And it was an invitational show. And of course they invited Hoover and they invited my dad and a guy named Dick Schramm that was a flying professor that did an outstanding job in the Cub. He was a Navy captain and the Blue Angels were there. Well, the big thing was, and of course I know I got in because of my dad and, and Hoover, was the astronauts invited the pilots they wanted, and they were their plane captains. Well, my invite was from Neil Armstrong and Pete Conrad. Wow. And, of course, I knew all these guys here again from different air shows with Bob and my dad. Yeah. You know? And, I mean, they'd sit in the airplane. Sometimes they'd come to Houma, Louisiana, where we lived, just to fly the fighters. In the off-season, a lot of Blue Angels and Thunderbirds would come there, too, to fly the fighters and play around. It was a hell of a send-off to have these two guys as my plane captains. It was yeah. uh, narrated by Frank Borman and Shorty Powers, who was the voice of NASA. You know, just a, and that's that's just the way it was for me. It all seemed normal. Yeah, right, right. And so, what what year was this? That would have been in sixty-seven, sixty-eight time period. Wow. So you were you were right in the thick of it there. I mean, it was yeah. Oh uh -huh. yeah. I mean, these guys they were just. In fact, the day I flew that air show. The Friday before, they had just announced the list of who would be going to the moon and when. The funny thing, let me tell you an interesting story, is that I'll take you two of them with Hoover. One of them was how he got his hat. And I know that's his trade symbol, so nobody really knows how he got his hat. I've told this story a number of times. In 67, I was cleaning their airplanes all the time and starting to just burn up in the sun. And there was a TV show called Yancey Derringer. 
And Yancey Derringer was about a riverboat gambler from New Orleans. And that's the hat he wore. So I went and got one of these hats. And we were at a show at, at Wright, Air, Wright Patton Air Force Base. And Bob said, man, I've been having some problems. My doctor's telling me I got to stay out of the sun. Let me see your hat. So I gave him my hat and he tried it on. I said, go ahead and use it for the day, you know. And at the end of the day, he gave my hat back. And the next show we were together was at Reading, Pennsylvania. Now, Ian, Reading, Pennsylvania was one of those must-make air shows if you wanted to fly air shows. I don't know if you had ever heard of Reading. Sure, yeah. I mean, it, was it a big World War II show back then as well? No, no. It was better than that. Okay. It was the beginning of the NBAA type of air show. Oh, okay. Hmm. It was in a great time because the jets were just coming out. Like you would have Learjet there and the Hansa jet from Germany, and the Jetstar. But you still had like the Armark B-26s show up for sale. Okay. And of course, my favorite, the Howard 500. So, you know, that was that time period. It was just fantastic. You know, it was all the business aviation and uh, what was best, what was best for the company. Do you go with a half a million dollar Learjet, you know, or the unheard of million and a half dollar Jetstar? Yeah, very cool. Yeah, it was a great, great time period. So yeah. we're standing on the ramp and the wind comes along and blows Bob's hat off. Now, like I said, I'm 22 or so, Bob's 47. And I figure at my 22-year-old mentality, I can't let this old man run down and get the hat. So it was, you know, blowing down the ramp. And uh, I ran down and got it and brought it back. And, of course, it got beat up blowing down the ramp, being a straw hat kind of thing. And he said, oh, I'll get a new one. I bought several of them. I got another one in the car. I said, I said, well, Bob, he came I said, prepared. yeah. So, well, he loved the hat. He couldn't yeah. thank me enough because it was just, it fit his persona. Yeah. My, he and my dad flew in business suits then. Yep. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. And I said, well, Bob, I said, don't throw it away. Will you sign it to me? So he assigned it, you know, wrote a nice message and signed it and gave it to me. And I still have it in my office today. And that was the first hat, but that's how he came up with the trademark hat. Well, tell me how you got into Hollywood then. How, how did that, because you were flying air shows. So how do you transition from that to, to Hollywood flying, which is very specialized? It is. It is. And very hard to get into, particularly with fixed wing. You got a million helicopter guys because they have to have helicopters. Sure. But it all started off, of course, here again, we were good friends with Frank Talman, who was the big man, and uh, Paul Mance which was really the people that did that business out there in, in California. And we knew them all. We'd be together several times a year. And so we're flying an air show at the Grumman Airplane Facility in 68. It was the last year that the uh, Navy Blue Angels would be flying Grumman aircraft, the F-11F. So get a call from Frank Talman, and he says, Corky, I'm going to have ABC call you. They have a program wide world of sports and they need to do some aerobatics and they want to do it in a p51 and we were already up there in new york for grumman so i get a call to go out and do aerobatics you know in the 51 we take a cameraman we uh, got some beauty shots also because grumman had all the different fighters you know up through the f11 that they could muster to get up there and then the phone just kept kind of ringing you know, can you come do this? Can you, you know, can you do that? And all this time I'm, I'm flying air shows now. And we had gone into the dual Bearcat team after, you know, the year after 
that, that show at Grumman. And after I'm flying the dual Bearcat show, of course, my dad had his accident at Rhode Island. And after that, of course, I continued flying the, uh, the Bearcat and air shows and had to fight with General Motors to keep our automobile dealership because I was so young, they had never given a Cadillac franchise to somebody so young. But that's a story in itself. We had a good old Southern attorney who was an ex-Marine who beat them. And after I had the dealership for a couple of years and, and uh, took it to what they call the 30s club, I said, you know, kind of the hell with this. I'm going back out and make movies. So I continued flying air shows and started doing the, the movies and got tied up with the little BD aircraft. BD had called me and we started the BD jet team. And after the BD jet team, I got a call from Toshiba and they wanted to do a commercial and they wanted to do a series of commercials. So they wanted me to come up with several different ones. And one of the first ones I came up with was flying through a hangar. And that was fun going to the FAA. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> oh, it was. First of all, I convinced the owner to let me use his hangar. Yeah. He was, he was a fan. And Toshiba wanted that as the first one. And then I went in to see the FAA, and when I told them, they just started laughing and said, okay, now, Corky, what do you really want to do? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and I said, I want to fly through this hangar. We've got all the permissions and everything else. Well, they said, um, do you think you can do it? I said, I know I can do it. Dimension-wise, I said, if I'm perfect going through the door, I've got six feet above me and six feet below me, you know, because it was a 16-foot high door. And I said, I'll be in and out in a flash. So I convinced them. They said, fine. Then I got a little worried and I thought, gee, how do you do it? Yeah. Remember an experience. <laughs> you, got, I <laughs> you got the permission before you had figured it all out. <laughs> right. That's it. So I think to myself, I've got to get a hold of a friend of mine. So I got a hold of Chuck Sewell, who was the chief engineering test pilot, ex-fighter pilot for Grumman Aircraft. And Chuck was one of these guys that would come fly the Bearcat. And I had checked him out in the BD jet. And I said, Chuck, here's my dilemma. I said, I don't know how fast or how slow to go through this hangar. And I said, Chuck, let me tell you this story. And he already knew it. When I flew the P-51 under the I-10 bridge over Lake Pontchartrain. And this is this ended up saving my life. One day I'm at over New Orleans, about 12,500 feet, 13,000 feet, showing a friend of mine, it was a beautiful, clear day, how you could see the Pensacola. And if you turned around and looked the other way, you could almost see, well, you could see past Baton Rouge, Louisiana, you know, how far you could see. And this friend said, gee, have you ever flown under the I-10 bridge? Evidently, the oxygen, lack of oxygen, I guess, got me in a, wasn't the smartest color in the box. And I said, no. He said, let's do it. So I pulled all the power, rolled it upside down, and did this beautiful split S. Now, I showed him a couple of things as we're going down. I said, let me show you here again something my dad and Hoover told me to do. They said, never spin the Mustang. I mean, they said, don't ever do it. We're going to show you how to simulate one. But if you spin the Mustang, you know, if you're under 11,500 feet, you're dead unless wow. you get out of it. Wow. Okay. And if it's uh, power off, it's 8,500 feet if you do oh. everything right. So, wow. you know, it, that's just it. So down we come. And as we pointed nose down before we get a lot of speed, I showed him that if you point the nose straight down in the 51, it'll go to 300 miles an hour and that's it, power off. And if you come back with the stick nice and slow but firm, you can sit there in a high-speed stall 
and with rudder kind of dance around and it looks like a spin, hmm. you know, but you got the nose straight down. So the second you release it, you're flying. Yeah. Because uh, the 51 has a terrible spin profile. Well, we're coming down. I demonstrated that we're coming down now, you know, 300 miles an hour, you know, that's, well, six, that's over th by 32,000 foot a minute rate of descent. And I keep adding the power because I figured in my brain, you go through there fast. The faster you go, you're in and out. And the bridge sits about 20 feet off the water. And I went through one of the humps, which we had just seen a big yacht go through. So I knew there were no wires. And that hump is, sits about 60 feet off the water. We get up to about 500 miles an hour. I mean, this is a, you know, a mile every eight seconds or so. Yep. And we line up, everything's lined up perfect. As I'm level and I see it, it's about 504 miles an hour and 505 was the red line. Now I had never had any problem taking it to the red line for several reasons. First of all, that airplane was only 22 years old. Okay, it was made in 45, so it's only 22. And the other thing is, is growing up with test pilots, I always asked them, how do you determine red lines? How do you determine this? And they explained the formulas and how much they had to exceed it to get the red line to that point. So I knew I was safe. But as I line up and I'm a little over 500, I go to put a little nose down trim in and it's it. It's all the way. I've got full nose down trim in. And in a 51, you live with the trim. It's kind of second nature, but it was just a surprise to me to try to put a little more nose down trim and boom, it was at the stop. And when mm -hmm. I told Hoover that story and I told him about being at the stop, he laughed. He said, yeah, you were 500. <laughs> he knew. <laughs> yeah, he knew. It was kind of like, saying, yep, you were there. So I-10 bridge is six spans on each side with a probably a 200 foot separation in the middle of the two spans. So you got 12 lanes and a 200 foot separation. My idea again was you're in and out quick. We got under that hump in that bridge and we lost about 40 miles an hour instantly and it hung me in the straps. Wow. Because of the pressure feedback. Yeah. As open as it was, that pressure had no room to move. Just like if you stand by the side of the road and an 18 wheeler comes by, mm -hmm. you feel it the same kind of way. So telling you know that story to my friend at Grumman, he says, okay, Corky, get the square footage of the hangar. Give me the square footage of every window and door you can open. He said, let me put it in a computer. And there weren't many computers back then. Mm -hmm. So Chuck takes all this information. He puts it in the computer. He says, 156 knots. If you stay below 156 knots, you won't get any pressure feedback. So that's the speed we used. Wow. Huh. How about that? That's so interesting. Well, here again, it saved my life. Otherwise, I'd have probably gone steaming through that hang. Yeah, as fast as you could. Yeah. And would have never made it. In wow. fact, after we had done that, Chuck came up and said he had a story of an Air Force pilot in Florida that tried to go through one of these winterized hangars in an F-86 with both ends open. And he got pressure feedback and skipped off the floor and up into the rafters. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's really, it's something you would never think of. I mean, you know, yeah. And that's what paid off in the movies. Yep. I mean, I can tell you about yep. scenes in the movies we did that you really had to think about. Yeah. So uh, tell me about, now you flew the BD-5, you know, and in, in, in probably your most famous scene there. So right. the BD-5, it, it looks to me like 
sort of like the GB, like it's virtually impossible to fly. What's it like to fly? It's not. It is. It flies like a. Um, the jet version is kind of like a uh, bonanza takeoff and landing. You you know you're landing close to the ground. It's uh, very quick in axis. You know and pitch and yaw and roll. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a go kart or a Formula One car compared to a business car. Yeah. It flies exactly. I'll tell you. In the air, it feels like a A4 T38. Not as quick mm-hmm. a roll rate, but that kind of a situation. It's a very, very safe airplane. Now, I had, uh, I've had 39 actual engine outs in force landings. 39? Oh, my gosh. And most of them in the BD. Oh. Most of them in the BD. Oh. One in the 51, but most of them in the different BDs. And uh, that was because the engines would fail on the Hearth engine, the German engine. Mm-hmm. The first jet engines we had problems with, and they would fail. Of course, I had two that were pretty well written up. One of them was um, we flew an air show in Miami and then put the airplanes on the Mike Douglas show. And after that, I flew the jet from there going to Washington, D.C. for a big aeronautical engineering convention in Washington, D.C. And the space we were going to put the little jet in, and we did eventually, was right next to the people that made the tiles for the space shuttle. They were just building the space shuttle. Hmm. But I left Atlanta. I went from Miami fueled up in Atlanta, was going up north, and beautiful day. I'm up about uh, 12, 13,000 feet, and a cloud layer developed under me, which wasn't supposed to be there. And I had called Winston-Salem and talked to them, and they said, well, it's a building, but we don't have anything. And, of course, they didn't have radar like they have now. Yeah. You know, you think it's, I mean, it's the 70s. You think they'd have decent radar, and it was the best for the time. And all of a sudden, red light comes on the dash the oil pressure light, which was one of the problems with the first engines. And I look at it and it still shows oil pressure. So I'm good. About the time I'm thinking that the oil pressure drops to zero. When it drops to zero, I have no choice because I want to save the engine if I have to restart it when I get under this cloud deck to go someplace and just run it till it seizes. Hmm. So I shut it off manually and now I'm a glider. Now the airplane had a glide ratio of 21 feet forward for every foot down. I mean, it's a fantastic airplane. That's amazing, actually. Wow. For such heavy wings. Yeah. Wow. But you have no weight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, here again, Chuck Sewell, when I first went to fly this at BD, I called him up and I said, Chuck, golly, I don't know. I said, you know, I looked at the rib on these airplanes and everything. I just don't know if I want to go fly it. Chuck laughed and he said, I'm disappointed in you, Corky. He (laughs) He said, it gets down to wing loading. What's your wing loading? Well, it was next to nothing. So, you know, I felt like a fool. So here I am over Winston-Salem, solid under me, solid overcast under me now. Well, I knew th- about 30 miles behind me was a uh, an airport. I wasn't going to go right into Winston-Salem because not 10 minutes before it was clear where I was coming from. When I turn around headed south, now it's all clouds. I start letting down. And of course, Beatty was famous for running weird tests. He had run a test like... How long would the uh, navigation equipment work if you engine out? You know, how long would the batteries last and things of that nature? And they would last over an hour. So I'm relying on the uh, Omni and I knew I took a course that I knew would keep me out of the mountains, you know, right over a valley. Mm -hmm. And I get into the clouds starting to come down. Now I'm coming down about 600 foot a minute or less than that, about 400 feet a minute. And, uh, you know, which is very good. Yeah. Controlled. Getting, yep. It's getting darker and darker and darker as I'm getting 
deeper in the clouds and saying, when am I going to break out? When am I going to break out of this stuff? And I talked to a center again and they didn't have any other reports. They were calling to see if anybody would report something. And I just knew that mountain was going to pop up in front of me. You know, you get that fear. So keep going. I have no choice. I'm holding 90 knots, which was the best L over D and starts to get a little, you know, where I can darker under me where I figured it's ground. Well, I break out about 800 feet over a pine forest and mountains on both sides. I look off to the right and about uh, three quarters of a mile away is I-95. That's my only choice. I'm not going down in the woods. So I mm-hmm. turn to the interstate. I line up on the interstate and it's hills. It's up and down. And of course, wires crossing it. So you're trying to, you know, look at everything. And I just, I said, I'm going to fly it all the way and stay in the air as long as I can. So I'm actually now about 15 feet above the ground going up and down over these hills. <laughs> it's, a, it's a Mayflower moving van in front of me. I'll never forget that big ship. And uh, as I come up on that, I honestly thought about landing on top of it. <laughs> because now I'm going about maybe 15 miles an hour faster than he is. Yeah. And I figured... There's lots of other traffic. I figured, well, I'll use this moving van if I can get past it, and maybe he'll help me. So I go over the top of the moving van. Now I'm crossing a maybe 10 miles an hour faster than he is, and I drop down right in front of his his windshield. And when I drop down, you know, uh, now I'm about five feet above the road, but still staying there, about 75 miles an hour. I hear him blow the horn, and I'm coming up on a Cadillac. And this Cadillac, the guy and the wife are looking at me yeah. as I pass them. They don't do anything. I'm over in my lane. I got plenty of room. Yeah. <laughs> and we go down the hill. We start up again, and there's a pickup truck towing a boat. Now, the woman sees me, and she is, I can see her mouth moving a million miles an hour, talking to her husband. He never moves. He doesn't even look till I'm on side of him. And when I get on side of him, now we're at the top of a hill. I kind of touch down and I point that I wanted to get in front of him. So he backs off. I move over in front of him. And about another 300 feet is a down ramp. I go down this down ramp, down the little access road, roll into a uh, gas station, roll across a rubber hose. You know, it goes ding, 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 ding. And there's a guy leaning against the doorway. I stopped. I'm taking my gloves off. I didn't even open the canopy. He comes walking up to the airplane. I open the canopy. He looks down and he says, is this candid camera? (laughs) (laughs) No sooner does he do that than out Uh of the strip strip mall, several ladies come running out from a dress shop saying they had seen the little airplane on Mike Douglas show. Oh my gosh. How about that? Yeah. Right. (laughs) So (laughs) we get out Uh and now this guy's trying to call the uh, TV station to get them to come out. And, of course, they're telling him he's drunk. He puts me on the phone, and they said, uh, tell me, we have no record of a, a jet crashing on the highway. And I said, no, I didn't crash. I landed on the highway and came into the gas station. Well, the guy hung up on me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, The station owner uh-huh. did, get, did get the newspaper to come out. And the next day on front of the front page, there's a picture of me and the jet and the gas pumps. Oh, wow. You know? Yeah. It, see, now that would be a perfect, absolutely perfect story if the attendant would have come up to you and you open the canopy and he's like, you know, what do you have? 
you know, or yeah. blow up, you know, it's like, right. Well, that's where that sequence came in the Bond movie. <laughs> right. That yep. whole opening sequence in the Bond movie was pretty much written off of this. Amazing. See, that's, that is amazing because I, I suppose I'd always assumed that, you know, it's like directors and writers, they've got this stuff set. They, they know exactly what they want and they say, can you do it? But it sounds like you've had a lot of actual input into what shows up. It's like, Hey, I think I can do this. Or what do you think about this idea? And then you pull it off and they use it. Well, that's what, I'm known for in the industry. You have, um, there's a number of aerial coordinators that just supply airplanes and pilots. I love the creative end of it and have worked with the directors enough and producers to do that. They'll ask me like on the opening sequence of Face Off, I crashed this jet star through a hangar and I had worked with John Woo before and, and who was a famous director. And he said, Corky, will you help the writers write this scene? Here's the, the deal. The bad guy has planted a bacterial bomb and he's going to get out of town. How do we stop him? So I thought about it and I said, okay, I said, he's got this bomb planted. It's going to destroy the city with bacteria. He comes out to get in his airplane. Of course, I was going to use a Gulf Stream at first, but try and, and find a, a Gulf Stream you can destroy. It isn't going yeah. to happen. Yeah, right. Gulf Stream buys all the parts back. I mean, they've got a setup. Like, if you have a Gulf Stream and there's an AD on your elevators, and I mean, I've seen this happen in Van Nuys, they will lease you a set for $250,000 a month while they repair yours. Wow. You know, there was none in junkyards or anywhere. So I chose a Jetstar because there was a Jetstar I could use out of Van Nuys, and I could get one out of the uh, big boneyard up there at Lake Mirage. And we put it together. But that's mm. how we came up. And I had the scene originally, I had to figure out, okay, the good guy, John Travolta, comes across in a Jeep. He sees the airplane about to take off. He jumps into a helicopter and chases the Jetstar down. Well, how do I slow the Jetstar down so the helicopter can catch it? I mean, I'm thinking, like a pilot, what would really happen? Yeah. So I had a Pitts that was landing, and the Jetstar was going to take off the opposite way. The Pitts does a snap roll over the wing as the Jetstar rolls on the runway. The Jetstar has to slow down, turn around, and go the other way. Therefore, the timing would be right for Travolta to get in his helicopter and catch the Jetstar. The director didn't have the screen time. Loved the story, so we wrote it in. But he's got the uh, Jetstar starting to take off. The helicopter she gets in the air and chases it down where it would have been already flying away. Now, that's a legal cheat in the film industry. Because sometimes you have to cheat the story to tell it because you're telling a story to the whole audience. Not right. just pilots, because you got to sell it that way. And I'm thinking, boy, we're going to get a million letters. You know, <laughs> we never got one. We never got one, you know, the production. But it, it worked out well because I wrote the scene. The uh, helicopter comes up. It beats the elevator because, as you know, in jets, if you if you can't rotate, you aren't going to fly away. You run off the end of the runway. So he comes up with the helicopter. He puts the skids on the elevator, holds them down. And finally, the Jetstar has to make a turn off of the runway. And, of course, we used the mock-up we made, and we used a real one uh, for different shots. The trick came was the Jetstar has to make a 90-degree turn off of the runway and then run into the hangar, run into the hangar doors. So how do you do that? How do you make a 90-degree turn in a Jetstar? You've never met anybody that's made a 90-degree turn at 65 knots in a Jetstar. <laughs> no. I have. Here's how we had to do it. I filled up the right wing tank. Okay. The left one's empty. I adjusted the strut so the airplane was level. And I knew from watching 
test pilot films, I had seen a F-104 that had tip tanks under the wing, drop tanks, that got sideways and grabbed the tip tank and it flipped. So I, that's the last thing I wanted, the boat tanks on the Jetstar. And to make sure I didn't roll it off the rims, I used the old hot rodding trick. We used sheet metal screws that we screwed through the rims of the wheel into the uh, bead of the tire so that you know they would stay on. And we figured that would work. I go out, I line up on the runway. The only thing I have is a GPS to get it up to speed. And when I want to turn, make the 90 degree turn, the nose wheel just started skidding straight ahead. It wasn't gonna make the turn. Then I said, okay. What I did was we came back and as I got about uh, 150 feet from the turn, I pulled all the power off so that the nose came up and then I went back 100%. So it nailed the nose and it made the turn. And wow. the turn you see in the film is real, real time. Because wow. it actually looks like it was speeded up because the helicopter film it making the turn from the air. Yeah. You know, yeah. and across. Amazing. So you're just, uh, a lot of times it's an idea and you say, well, let's go for it and see if it works. And How do uh, we make it work? And yeah. we've got guys like the, uh, an A-list crew like that movie is going to have the best in the world. And the special effects people, most of them were like MIT graduates. You know, huh. we had it set up. We had a bet with the director, John Wu, on how far it would go into this hangar. And we had two problems with the hangar was that it was going to be a one-time shot. They were using 35 cameras, most cameras ever used on a shot. I had two of them on the airplane. I had a fire suppression system. And all I had to do was get it up to 65 knots and punch it through the mark on the, on the door. Now, we couldn't cut the doors because we did this at George Air Force Base. And the winds get up so high sometimes that it would have blown the doors in if we had pre-cut them. So we built a cage out of steel in the nose of the Jetstar. So I actually punched through the doors, these hangar doors. And we went out and to get used to, I wanted to get used to the sight picture. How do you get used to that? To be able to hit that mark. Yeah, yeah this hangar coming at you. So I would drive my truck by the edge of the hangar at that speed just to see what it was going to look like with this going at this door. And I got used to it and said, that's a piece of cake. We get in the airplane to do the trick. Keep in mind now, all I got to do is get it up to 65 knots turn on the cameras, turn on the fire suppression system and hit the mark. The director says, how are we going to stop him once he goes through the door? Because the airplane weighed 22,000 pounds. So these special effects guys came up and they had boxes and boxes and boxes that would act as a cushion. They also had these big 55-gallon plastic barrels that they sealed and they were going to use water yeah. to seal them. Like on the highway, and they, yeah. Yeah, and then they punch holes in the top of it so that it decelerates, you know, the water mm -hmm. trying to get out of the sealed barrel. Mm -hmm. I was worried to death about fire because yeah. everything on this airplane was hydraulic. We had a big hydraulic tank and that's the last thing I wanted to burst. You know, I had a fire suit on and everything. And of course we had fire equipment there, but that's the one thing I was worried about. We start through, I get up to speed. I'm looking at this hangar door. I get the uh, fire suppression system on. I get the cameras rolling. I'm lined up right on the mark. I look up. It's the first time I've really had to think, you know, concentrating on the mark. And I thought to myself, foreign off, what in the hell are you doing here? Because you can't believe how big that door gets and how fast <laughs> it got. <laughs> and it was too late to do anything else. Uh, and I, I hit that door and it hung me in the straps and put a bruise on my chest where the straps were. I can imagine. We went through. 
And the bet that special effects had with the director, these special effects guys were so good. They said, this airplane at this weight is going to go this far. Hmm. So the director put an expensive camera right on that mark, right on that spot. And if you see the film, it punches through that hangar door because, I mean, they had the camera inside. We had them in the cockpit and outside. It goes through, and it goes right to that camera and stops. And it makes a little bow, and the nose wheel collapses. So they knew it. They nailed it. Wow. That's amazing. What scared me was you never move until the director yells cut. All of a sudden, I've got this purple stuff that looks like hydraulic fluid flowing all over the canopy. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, a fire. Yeah. Special effects people didn't fill the drums with water. They filled them with outdated fruit juice and milk. <laughs> so, you know, those are just the crazy things that happen uh, in movies. But, you know, it's how hard you work to get things done right. So, David, I don't know. Would, do you think you'd have the guts to taxi a jet into a hangar? I, I don't think I, you know, into a closed hangar. I don't think I could do it. I just checked my insurance, Ian, and the answer is no. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, amazing guy, Corky. So, you know, we hope he finishes his book soon because it's going to be amazing reading and great to have him on. Yeah, and I really enjoyed that scene in the BD-5 jet in Octopus. He's one of my favorites of all times. So. Yeah, a big one. So. All right, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Teal. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. And we're also on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, wherever you get your podcasts. And we're also on Spotify. So see us there. All right, we'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hanger Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly. <laughs>